I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the Aboriginal people of Australia whose country I live and work on. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and thank them for sharing their cultural knowledge and awareness with us. everyone. I'm Trisha Carter, an organisational psychologist and an explorer of cultural intelligence. I'm on a quest to discover what enables us to see things from different perspectives, especially different cultural perspectives, and why sometimes it's easier than others to experience those moments of awareness, the shifts in thinking. As those of you who've listened to some of the earlier episodes will be aware, cultural intelligence, sometimes called CQ, is the capability to be effective in situations of diversity. And it's made up of four areas, motivational, knowledge, metacognitive, and behavioral. And it's a capability that helps us as we move across cultures. Today, I'm speaking with someone who has made many cultural moves and who is high on all of those aspects of cultural intelligence. And she's brought them to support her not only on those cultural moves, but also in her day-to-day work as a forensic auditor. Welcome, Grace. Grace Booker-Monkaji. Hi, Trisha. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's wonderful to be here with you, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you and unpacking some of the adventures you've had in your life so far. So, Grace, what is a culture, other than the culture you grew up in, that you have learned to love and appreciate? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) Um, I think for me, I don't have any specific culture that's like a favorite. For me, I take all the cultures that I've been lucky to sort of experience and immerse myself in. They they all are part of me or part of my becoming. So for me, um, I don't have any specific culture that's my favorite, but I do have um, sort of aspects of all those different cultures that I that I find um, uh, are things that I favor and I use every day depending on like whether it's um, my personal interactions or um, professional interactions so yeah but like um, pretty much there's a good thing about every culture yes that's the thing that I, I I really appreciate about being exposed to different cultures. You appreciate how different we are as human mm-hmm. beings and how we see different things from different cultures. And then at the same time, how different we are and how that's that's perfectly okay yeah. to be different. Because the current cu- cultural setting I'm in, in Papua New Guinea, um, to be different is often... It's often a challenge, especially if you're a female. It's mm. we're brought up to be sort of conformist, and we we listen to the head of the family, be that our father or our husband, you know, a partner or your boss at work. And so that that aspect is there. Given my exposure to other cultures, I've been able to see myself as an individual as well as part of the group. So I can go between. Yeah. So I think, right. I think my favorite part about the early interactions in other cultures that don't sort of live in 
collective societies is the ability to switch between individualistic and then group. Ooh, so interesting. That's the biggest blessing that I've 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 gotten from being from my early exposure to the different cultures. And being able to appreciate both of those ways of operating. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Because there's 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 pros and cons to every approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So I'm interested then to think about a time when you have experienced a real shift, you know, when you might have suddenly become aware of a new perspective. Can you tell me about a time like that? Oh, um, I think I experienced a major shift um, when I moved from the U.S. back to Papua New Guinea because I'd spent my formative years in the U.S., and I, I wasn't old enough in, in Papua New Guinea to really figure out who I am as a person before I moved to the U.S. So sort of that cultural setting that I was over there, and this was, this was on the East Coast. And, and so when I was in that setting, when I moved to PNG, I think the hardest thing to, for me to grapple with, I think I remember two major incidences, or not incidences sounds bad, situations. Yeah, moments, became, moments. Moments, moments, <laughs> where I became aware. It was when we returned and it was sort of um, our first holiday to go yeah. to the village. So every Papua New Guinean has a village that mm. they go home to for holidays. And so I come from a little island. And so I went with my family and then I saw my male cousins climbing the trees and I, and so I instinctively, I ran to climb as well, because that's that's what I do in the U.S. Right. Okay. And so I started climbing, but then my grandmother came down and she scolded me mm. and she was like, um, you're not you're not supposed to be climbing the trees. That's something for your cousin brothers to do. And even the term cousin brothers, yeah. that's not something I'd been exposed to in the U.S., because in the U.S. it's very it's it's your nuclear family, and yes. it, brother is only by biological link. But in in the Pacific, um, your family, your cousin brothers can be your first cousins, second cousins. They're all cousin brothers. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you've got quite quite a big family. Yes. Um, I was shocked immediately because I was like, oh, this is my grandmother who who's who's very loving, and she welcomed me onto the island, and I've already gotten to know her bonded over a few days. So when she scolded at me, I was I was surprised. And so I didn't know whether I should continue climbing the tree or come back down. But then it was the way everyone looked at me, even my cousin brothers, the children I was playing with, they looked at me. And then I felt, I think that was the first time I sort of felt confronted that what right. I was doing wasn't acceptable and mm-hmm. so I came down and I remember it was quite sad I remember like I came down and then I just sort of went and sat on the side and watched yeah. the place sort of climb the trees and I think she never she she didn't she didn't come over and explain to me why I couldn't do it mm-hmm. but she expected that maybe my parents would have taught me that and right. they did do a lot of that cultural um formatting when we were in the U.S. it was still mm-hmm. very both cultures so they would uh, we would be going to school being exposed to the American culture coming back home they would still speak our mother tongue all of that and so I knew some uh, some of the cultural rules I wasn't totally you know not aware of it yes. but I think seeing it applied absolutely in that setting and being that young I think I, I it, it got me off guard and so I never really knew you know why I couldn't do that and later on as I went like um like true life as I went on to further my education and then went like began working life in Papua New Guinea I realized that um, there will be many moments where 
I'm I'm asked to get off that tree. Yes. And I have to decide when is a time when I will apply what I learned in my American cultural upbringing, which is to speak up. And as long as you justify yourself and to stand up for what you believe in, then that's perfectly fine. And as long as you do it in a respectful manner, you're not harming other people, then it's perfectly okay. So when to apply that and then mm-hmm. when to apply my Melanesian cultural values, which is there's sometimes that um, I I cannot do certain things. It's yeah. not acceptable for me as a woman. Mm-hmm. So that one incident is something that I, I make reference to a lot when I talk to people about um, moving between worlds. Yes. It's a very simple thing, um, but it's been very, it's it's guided me through different settings that I've le- later learned how to apply myself in university, in mm. the life and all of that, because when when we are educated as Papua New Guineans, we're educated to the extent of you know the knowledge for that specific subject, but our culture is still something we bring in even to the mm. workplace. And so and so I'm always very aware of that when I go into the workplace or at university that I'm surrounded by people that have cultural values that me that 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 sort of place me in a situation where I have to be quiet at times or I can't do certain things. But I just have to know which moments, yeah. Yes, yeah. Climb the tree or to get off the tree. Exactly. So am I the little girl who gets off the tree right now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you have had a lot of global moves in your life from that childhood experience where you were born in Canada, raised in the USA with your dad's post-grad work and study. And then as an adult working in your profession, you were selected to represent your Papua New Guinean organization and move to Australia for a year of learning and growth, which was when we met. And and after that, you moved back to PNG. Then a few years later, you were awarded a Shevening scholarship, which is, you know, a real privilege and honor. And you went to study in Wales, completing a master's degree in forensic audit and accounting. And then again, after that, you moved back to Papua New Guinea. And since then, you've been selected to be part of the Young Pacific Leaders Group, which was an Australian award, and more recently selected to be part of the U.S. Professional Fellows Program, where you went and worked in the U.S. as an adult. So maybe in some ways coming full circle from that childhood experience. It sounds like you've made a number of significant shifts mentally and behaviorally. So so tell us about them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm really grateful for the first sort of move after I moved back to PNG was moving to Canberra. And that's where I had the great serendipity to meet you. Yes. And, and I think that was all um, that was an interesting experience for me, apart from, you know, learning how the Australian government um, does audits and all of that. Um, that. That was from sort of the professional angle. But I think you were the first person that taught me the word TCK. So just to give you a little bit of a definition of what a TCK is, it stands for a third culture kid. And it's a term used to describe people who spend a significant part of their childhood living outside their passport countries. Uh, A friend of mine, Tanya Crossman, is a researcher in this area, and she has a fantastic blog explaining it. So I will put that in the show notes as well. And I, I had never been you know, uh, taught that term. I never knew it existed. I I mean, I knew there were kids like me out there, but I didn't know what we were called. Like it was a thing. Yeah. I didn't know that. But I think that was, I, I like to think that was the beginning of my process in terms of 
understanding what happened with getting on the tree and getting mm. off the tree. Because all along I had never I'd never come to no no one had adequately explained to me. I myself had not unpacked that properly. I sort of stored it away yes. and 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 carried on with life, life in PNG. Because also my culture that I am a part of in Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea is very diverse. Over 800 languages, every right. state has a different culture down to, yeah, every district. Every, it's very multicultural. And where I'm from, we're sort of raised to, you know, cop it up and move on. Mm-hmm. We're not a culture where um, people will sympathize with you if that's sort of, it's not seen as a hurdle. It's yeah. sort of sort of the sort of like, I can make reference to sort of like when they say first world problems. I don't like to refer to it, but it's like that where it's right. real to someone from an emerging economy. It's the same thing. So I couldn't, I couldn't raise it. They, they, they were just like, oh, well, you were just being disobedient. That's mm-hmm. why they wanted you to get off the tree. But th- through le- uh, meeting you um, when I went on that secondment to Australia, I don't know if you'll remember, but there was, uh, you showed us the iceberg of mm-hmm. what's below culture what else what are things we see and what else is below it and then when you got to know me and then you were like oh you're a third culture kid and so I immediately went home googled a bit more looked at <laughs> iceberg a bit more and I was read like, some of the research yeah I read some <laughs> of the research being the nerd I am <laughs> which I've now you know learned to accept that I am what I absolutely am. yes and, and then I realized oh there's a wealth of information there's people out there that understand what what I'm going through and so that really set the tone for when I went to Canberra and going to Australia, I realized also that Australians also differ from Americans. And so learning that 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 shift as well, that, OK, in Australia, they're, they're close to us, Papua New Guinea. They're further from the U.S., but there's somewhere in that <laughs> iceberg. There's somewhere in there. Yeah. And so learning learning that was important. I think for me, Canberra, the thing that stood out was meeting you and being introduced to the concept of TCK. Mm-hmm. So equipped with that, when I returned back to Papua New Guinea, um, it, it helped because after my experience in Australia, it also meant I moved up um, in the organization. And so that nice. required me to be, you know, interacting with, before I was sort of like, um, probably like the intern, the understudy that yes. went along. And then now I'm pushed into uh, more roles and responsibilities because mm-hmm. now I've, got, I've gotten that experience from Australia. They ex- they expect a bit more from me. Absolutely. And this time when I'm going to the clients, once again, I'm confronted with whether to climb the tree or not, because often the people I'm interviewing are older, they're male. Mm-hmm. And now, But now being equipped with what you taught me during the 10 months, and 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 my exposure back into you know in Australian life, and then coming back here, I find that it made me a bit more sure of myself. Right. Yeah. Because I now know that um, there are times where I need to sort of back off, and mm-hmm. there are times that I have to do I have to go forward and climb that tree because it's either the, there's a deadline to Parliament, things that I need to do for work. Yeah, absolutely. So that it's really a- helped me. Recognizing what you were capable of and what you had. Yes. Um, um, I'm also aware then you moved to Wales, which again would have been, you know, similar and different to both Australia and to um, the USA. So there would have been another shift as well. Yes. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I found moving to Wales 
when I did tell people even from Wales and from the UK, they were like, hmm, why are you leaving the tropics? It, it, it rains a lot out there. Why, why, why are you doing that move? And I said, well, for the sake of the degree, the, the specific degree I want, there's yes. only few places in the United Kingdom, any, let alone the world, that offer this course. So that's where I'm going in search of education. That's where I'm headed. And they were like, okay. And then when I arrived there, I think the thing that stood out to me was that the announcements at the train station, it was obvious when I had left um, Heathrow and I was on my way to Cardiff, um, I realized that when I arrived at the Cardiff station, the announcements were, were made in both Eng uh, Welsh first and then yeah. English. Wow. And I was like, and I've always, I've always listened to um, sort of Gaelic music, Welsh mm -hmm. music, up, up, leading up to going because of the nerd I am. I was researching right. culture. Of course. And all of that. And so yeah. I was like, oh my Gathering God. your knowledge. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, it's, it's that, it's their language. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I remember feeling, I actually got goosebumps at the train station because I thought back to Papua New Guinea and how we have over 800 languages that's what we like to tell everyone including what I'm telling you today yes. but we really don't know how many of those 800 actually exist currently right. and every day I'm pretty sure that some of the last speakers of certain languages are dying off because mm -hmm. as Papua New Guinea becomes more educated our our language for education and business is English mm. and the other other language we speak here um pidgin is is, is sort of a mixture of English it's like broken English and so we're losing our mother tongue yeah. and none of our signs are in our languages none of our announcements are in our languages but I can understand why because we have over 800 to so many yes. and it might just be a small small group that speaks your language yes. yeah yes. yeah and then we also don't have um I think all the trained like we need linguists to sit down and translate for us the actual sounds for all those 800. So the phonics mm -hmm. comes in as well. And that will take some time. And that's still something that like that needs to be done. In the meantime, we want people to be speaking their mother tongue, teaching their children, not, not just jumping straight to talk person or to English, but to, to valuing the different languages. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think um, language development is also good it's also good for your brain. Mm -hmm. Languages you learn as a child, it it activates more um, aspects of your brain, different parts of it. Yes. But apart from that, I also like to think I have sort of, it also impacts the way I think. Like I have, there are some times when I'm on my sort of PNG thinking, mm. and I kind of switched on to that. And then I have my American mind switched on. Right. It's, you describe it to people that go, oh, do you suffer from multiple personalities? <laughs> what is it but it is actually the lenses there are yeah. where I will shift so even speaking it's not just about speaking the language that they speak English in the U.S. they speak um, English in uh, Wales they speak English in Australia but even the frame of thinking even if it's in the same language for me it changes depending on where I'm at yes yeah and so that's one of the things that you did to to help you make the shift to sort of think in the terms of the language that you were, maybe the accent or the yes. pace. Um, yeah. Yes, definitely. And I think for, I found Welsh culture very similar to Papua New Guinea mm. in terms of, um, of being laid back. Mm -hmm. 
I found that similarity with Papua New Guinea, yet it had the right balance of laid back yet on time. Okay. So yep. time is something that that I see is there's a big stark difference um, from my other cultures. Mm-hmm. Versus Papua New Guinea, island time is very, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yes. And, and you may remember when we spoke about it in, in, in the training right at the start, we talked about sequential time, you know, like a, like a line, like an arrow that you can chop up and manage and synchronic time, which is far more circular and, you couldn't chop it up and manage it because it just is. Uh, that's that's exactly what I think island time is. And yeah. often I do, I do, I will hear people sort of, people from other cultures will sort of refer to it in sort of with a bad undertone. I'm sort of like, I'm always left to decide whether I should also explain to them that the reason it, being late is never anything good. like it's not good to do that to anyone it's bad manners but in our culture um our time is not just our time it's our family's time it's your neighbor's time it's there's a, there's a lot more people that at, at stake because we live sort of in a group setting and so we will have it's not that we don't plan we do have mm. a time that we're supposed to but along the way we will have to divide our time along the way before we finally reach our destination. And yes. then, <laughs> there is also the concept of in our culture, if you don't greet someone, even if you're rushing, mm. automatically they think you're being rude. And so nobody wants to be perceived in their community that they're being rude. And so you, you're you left saying hello along the way and you're yeah. rushing. And sometimes it, it's hard. And, it, and then it, it, it gets more complicated if you're talking to elders along the way. And for yes. us, respect for elders is very important in our culture and yeah. so even if I'm running late if I bump into somebody that's you know an elder that that's a friend of my dad or my mom I have to stand there and talk a bit I I, I go on and and pay them the honor of time yeah yes, pay them yeah. the honor of time so I like when, when the when the setting is right I do sort of jump in there just to explain yeah. that because I feel without that understanding people who haven't had exposure to cultures such as that of Papua New Guinea and mm. many other parts of the world where we live in sort of group culture um, that they, they would perceive it as just being rude and there's a risk of that. Do you find you have to sort of remind yourself sometimes, you know, like, you know, don't climb the tree right now? I guess that is maybe that is one of your most powerful sort of um, shift techniques, if you like, to remind yourself which cultural way you're choosing to operate in. Um, definitely. I think recently when I went back um, to the States for the fellowship, um, I met another third culture kid. Um, the person that was actually my manager had a very similar um, shift as me. She she had originally come from Nepal, mm-hmm. and moved to Canada, spent her high school years there, and then moved to the US. And there was something that she told me that that sort of cements further on how to deal with whether to climb on the tree or to get off the tree because apart from the cultural influences on my on me my sort of personality is very I'm not very passive <laughs> no no <laughs> no it really gets it, it, and and you're absolutely that's why I'm, I'm laughing when you ask me that question because you know me too well any times where I just want to run up the tree and shake the tree and, <laughs> and be like hey 
I'm here. Yeah. It needs to be done, you know. But I she told me because she I I observed her, I I observed her in 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 the office that I was attached where she works. Um, I observed her also maneuvering through, you know, um the organizational culture, the culture mm-hmm. and all of that. Um and she told me there's a time to be quietly bold and there's a time to just be outright bold. Oh, that's that's helpful. Yes. And yeah. I think and she didn't I realized that she didn't tell me out of the blue. She because I had already shared with her some of the struggles I will have in terms of the kind of things that I want to do. And and she realized that she had to share that with me. And she also realized that I had observed her be quietly bold. Because we had discussed a game plan for for this this um, sort of situation that she was in, but then when we went before the people that she had to sort of present to, she 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 took a different turn, mm-hmm. and she must have seen my face because my dominant "let's do it now" was like yeah. disappointed. I was like, "This was not what we discussed. What's going on?" But in the end, it 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 um, she achieved her objective. And that's when she she realized and she she knew that I had noticed that. And then I told her later on on the drive back when she was going to go re- um, leave me at my Airbnb. I was like, hey, I noticed you did something there. And then she said, yeah, I saw your face in the crowd. <laughs> you were like, oh, my God, that's not what we planned. Right. And then suddenly you had this calm smile. And I said, because I realized that you still achieved what we we needed to do, what mm. you were trying to do. And so when after she dropped me at, at my Airbnb and um, journaling, which is, you know, something that you reminded me to do when we when you in, when I was in Canberra and it's still mm-hmm. something I do today. I you know, I don't always have time to write every night, yeah. but there are moments when I feel like I need to unpack things. And that's when I reflected back and I was like, it's still again about when to know when to climb the tree, get off the tree. And so it's it's that reminder again. And I think that is something that I, 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 I needed to be, I need, I, I needed that now sort of the shift in my career more than ever. I'm now dealing with more sensitive things compared to what I used to do before. And so I have to be very, very careful on which trees I get on and right. shake and when is the right moment or to quietly climb up yep. that sort of thing. And so that was a good reminder. And like you are a forensic auditor, um, one of the things that I've become aware of over the years is that auditors are often almost a culturally unique part of an organisation and so they need to build bridges across organisational cultural differences or if they're external, they're coming into organisation and they might need to build the bridges to get cooperation and understand the organisation and so that sounds exactly like the sort of situation that you're saying that sometimes you'll go in and you'll go, I can climb the tree, um, I'll do it quietly, or this is a time to be quietly bold in this organisation rather than in another. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think audit audit sometimes has sort of a bad connotation because everywhere people be like, oh my God, I'm being audited. And they have this this view that we're almost like bad cops that come in right, and like, hey, right. you did this wrong, you did that wrong. And then oftentimes I find that um, it's just about building that repertoire with the client. And it, it's all about respect as well, because um, we can't get the information. The thing with audit is that we're not there to point out everyone's mistakes. Um, we're there to improve the organization and their processes. 
And so in order for us to understand that better, we need to we need to build that trust with the client and with the people that look after each of these sections, pieces of the puzzle that come together. Yeah. And, and there are two types of auditors. And, you know, there will be people that will go in and be like, I want this, this, this and that. And they're very cold towards the client. And there are others that, you know, will have to go with, with a higher sort of emotional intelligence realize you're not going to get much information and it's a skill that you have to learn there's a lot of people also think that oh auditors are great number um crunches and we are but we also have to have good people skills absolutely skills are very very important and I find that there's there's times when I use the American sort of upbringing that the culture I learned from Mm -hmm. that if I've sent a polite email to the client, I've sat down and talked with them, but they're still sort of delaying, that's when I have to be a bit more bold. And I like to refer to that part as as the part of me that 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 comes from the American culture side. Yeah. Where like, hey, I sent that email and now I need this because we're only here for three weeks. This right. is given. And then when I go in, I often go in very Melanesian because we are operating in Papua New mm-hmm. So I go, you know, greet and figure out what they're doing and tell them that, you know, we're just here to help improve your processes, all of that. Um, yeah, go from there. But like, that's usually, that's sort of what I did as a financial compliance auditor. And I was, for most of my career, I've been an external auditor. So usually when you're coming from the outside in, people are always very edgy when you go in. But that edginess is edginess has sort of increased now. When I go in as a forensic investigator, forensic audit as well, fraud, all of that. When I go in for that, um, I can't really tell them, oh, I'm here to improve your processes because I'm not. I'm here to find fault this time. Exactly. I'm, I'm here to find where, where the fraud occurred, where, where the internal control processes were not occurring the way they were supposed to. And that led to this. And, and, and But at the same time, I have to limit myself with the benefit of the doubt. That mm-hmm. go by the evidence that's just the alleged I we, that's the, probably the alleged complaint we got but right. this case, it might be perfectly okay there might have just been a process with sort of the the data entry between the manual process to the system it mm-hmm. might have just been a system error or a human error but I have to have it at the back of my mind but then at the same time all auditors are trained to have professional skepticism but when you're a forensic auditor you're suspicious of everyone <laughs> But you still have to build trust. Yes. But at the same time, you still have to build trust to start to figure out and shift through, okay, this is what this person said, that other person said, but wait a minute, that person was in the background. They didn't say much interviewing this set of people. Is there something there? That sort of thing. And then at the back, there's also the cultural things at play. Um, Being from a certain part of Papua New Guinea, we all can tell where each of us, we can tell what part of Papua New Guinea are from. And so when there's a break time, whether it's at lunchtime or yeah, morning coffee, there will be someone probably from my part of Papua New Guinea that will be here to tell me something like, oh, there's a, there's a, you know, there'll be a slight whistleblower on the side there. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Figure out, you know, is this, is this uh, sort of something genuine smoke for me to look into? Mm-hmm. Or is this their own internal politics? Or if I listen to this person, is that a cultural bias? Because that's, they're, they're from the same part of Papua New Guinea I'm from. So right. I try not to tune in too much to people that are from the same part as me, because I find that it clouds my judgment in re- remaining impartial. 
So I try, but I will listen to little, like a, a trivial thing. If they say, oh, that's where the ladies' toilet is. But if they <laughs> try to get into details about why we're there and what they know, I often will tell them that um, if if you'd like, you can write me a statement. And I know if they if they if they're turning around playing cat and mouse with someone else, then they won't come and see me after that. So that's how I sort of try to weed out what I hear. It sounds like you need a lot of cultural intelligence. And I know you spoke about emotional intelligence, but you are also bridging the different ways people operate, um, you know, across different organizations, across different, um, as you said, different people groups within Papua New Guinea. And so that CQ that you sort of, you know, you've built up over the years, built up as a TCK and then refined on all your, that'll, that'll be really holding you in good stead in those situations as well. I'd love also to ask you, because I know this is something you've been doing a lot of lately, um, about supporting other Papua New Guinean people who are applying for opportunities. So it might be like the Shevening Scholarship. Um, and I know there are some of the other scholarships that exist that you're educating people around and you're encouraging people to take a step and to apply. And I know you're helping people understand application processes and practice interviews and all of those things, which I think is absolutely amazing. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and what your hopes are for that work that you're doing um, to sort of support others in, in, in their own growth and development. Oh, yeah. Um, that is, I, I, I can talk about this till the cows come home. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is sort of like a passion project that I have on the side. Uh, my little group is called Right Mary. Mm -hmm. And so in sort of Papua New Guinean pidgin lingo, we will say right Mary for someone that's like a good bloke, a good girl. And so I've sort of played played around with that and have it sort of written W-R-A-I-T. So mm -hmm. it's about writing. Yes. But it's like right Mary. And basically with that, um, I give scholarship advice for pretty much any scholarships that's el eligible to Papua New Guineans to apply or other people around the world that I've had things to LinkedIn. I've had people um, in different parts of the world also message me scholarship advice. I like we, my team and I also review essays. Um, we run through, um, if they've been shortlisted for an interview, we provide mock interviews as well. Also give advice if they have to sit any of the graduate entrance exams, like the GRE or English. They um, Australian and New Zealand universities often will require IELTS but American yeah. universities usually require TOEFL and okay. so we we provide that sort of um, coaching and guidance and I think my main reason for sort of starting this on the side was that I realized that um, when I returned back from completing my master's through the Chevening, UK Chevening um, scholarships um, yeah, shout out to the British government. Yeah. <laughs> it was an amazing experience. Um, a lot of people reached out to me, wanted to have coffee or, you know, informally send me an email like that, that they wanted to apply. I noticed that after all the coffees and the emails, when it came time to actually click submit, mm. very few people actually submitted. And that got me curious as to what, why didn't they submit? They seemed like really great applicants, potential applicants. Many of them had forwarded me their CVs and their experiences. And I was like, you hit you hit everything that they're looking for. And so then I realized that, oh, I think it's not only about um, having the right experience and um, exposure and the education sort of requirement, but it's also 
um, providing that um, accountability partner, some of these people to to sort of encourage them that you can, you are what they're looking for, you have what it takes. On all, all the scholarships websites, you know, they have to market um, some of their star scholars. I also felt intimidated when I was looking looking at the, the, the UK Chevening website. You know, there were people that um, had already started their their businesses, their mm -hmm. foundation, not-for-profits. Yeah, they were full on. And I was like, oh my God, I I haven't started half the things they've listed. Do, do I have what it takes? And, and so that's when I realized that I think that could be what people are also going through and not applying when it came time for the due date. When I started this, um, I'm happy that now I've seen that slowly the the number of applicants that have approached me it has increased in terms of clicking submit because I keep telling them you can't you can't be in the race unless you submit all it's going to cost is you know probably you know your ego if you get a rejected mm -hmm. email but once you get over that you know the process and you can try again next year yeah there are people that I've met and I tell them all the stories about the people I met in London when I went mm. to class that had told me that they'd applied four, five, six times before right. they got into Chivening. And I was lucky that I got in on my first attempt. But um, I wanted everyone to know that there are people out there that have, have tried many times and they still got in in the end. So yeah. it's not about how many times you apply. Chevening's not going to discriminate or Australian awards or any other of the scholarships. In fact, it to them, to the panel, they see that this is a determined person. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So apart from providing, you know, the formal things in terms of reviewing essays and all of that, it's also getting people in the right headspace mm. and getting through imposter syndrome, which is something we all go through. And so just letting them know that it is it is a thing, it's okay, and you just have to keep going. Just the yeah. way you sort of highlighted TCK to me and then that opened up a whole world for me. And I guess you yourself are sort of embodying it in front of them. So here's a Papua New Guinean woman who, you know, has been subject to the same cultural influences, told not to climb the trees, um, but she has gone around the world. So if she can do it, I can do it too. And so that must be encouraging for them. Absolutely. I tried yeah. to share also with them that um, I was told not to apply. They had told me that... Um, I had still, I was still too young to apply. That was what right. I was told. Um, just within my organization, they said that um, postgraduate um, degrees was meant for people that had served at least 15 years. Mm. And at the time that I'd applied, I <laughs> I'd only served five years. And I was like, and that's when, that was a moment when I was like, nope. I'm going to climb that tree because yep, that's I have right. my own timeline. Go for that tree, girl. Yeah, so yep. I'm going for that tree. And I also held myself to a different standard because I saw I, I'd reconnected with my friends from childhood from the oh. U.S. And I saw that in the U.S., people as young as 25 were going and doing their master's, 24, right. 23. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I held myself to that ruler. And I was like, no, I think it's within my reach. People yeah. I went to school with are doing that right now. So I think it's an opportune time. And so I'm going to go for it. And so um, I tell them that story to encourage them because many of them are also going through that. And I think yeah. it's even harder when you're a female because you you could be a mother. Mm -hmm. or, and oftentimes people will also tell you that, oh, you're going to live like you're going to leave your family, travel thousands of miles away to go to school. You know, what kind of mother are you? What kind of, you know, 
you're yeah. living behind your family, all of that. And so there's a lot of doubt that's surrounding you. And sometimes the people around you don't even know that they're being negative. But you and, and that just increases your imposter syndrome more. And so I tell them that, like, you know, sometimes you have to be you have to not listen and just climb that tree. And so I actually, in fact, did not get all the approvals. I went ahead and applied and then later was like, hey, so I did a thing. <laughs> I, got I climbed a tree. I climbed a tree. And could you guys release me off to study now? Yeah. And they were like, um, OK, we told you you were not supposed to do that. And I was like, well, I did it. So it is possible. And so as a result of that, I'm quite happy that um, after I had gone and done that, when I returned back from studies, a couple more people within my organization, young people, started applying for scholarships. Took the leap. And, and they went yeah. across to New Zealand. They went to Australia. And right. I was like, wow, okay, there's something there's something good happening from climbing that tree. Yeah. Despite me being told not to do that. And so now I'm thinking... I don't think it's only just within our organization. This is probably happening in other organizations. And now through what I do with the writing coach coaching, I realize mm -hmm. that it's happening all around. And um, for me, I get excited that I get to tell more people to go climb trees. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. And also I want to say, if anybody wants to contact you so that they can get that, receive that help, that that um, assistance and guidance, they should do that via LinkedIn. And I'll put your LinkedIn contact in the show notes so that people can follow up with you, Grace. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful to reflect with you and to see all your learning um, your very many learnings through your different um, mobility experiences and the cultural intelligence and the growth that you've developed um, and, and all the shifts that you've made. So we really do appreciate it. Thank you for your time. It's it's wonderful. Oh, no, the pleasure is mine, Tricia. Always mm -hmm. lovely to speak to you. And I I hope I hope the people listening don't get too confused about what we're, we're talking about when we're talking about climbing the trees. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, it's been such a pleasure. And yeah, I, I, I really hope that um, I think a bottom line is that if there's only if there's one person that listens to this and goes and decides to climb a tree, whether that be applying for a scholarship or a job or just starting something new in their life, I hope mm. that's something they do. And I, I also hope that we we build a world where people are respectful of the differences and similarities between cultures. Yes. And I think that's we are more we're more similar than different. Yes. And the differences are wonderful. So yes. we should celebrate them too. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're using. Um, and we'd also really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast. So thank you very much. I look forward to um, speaking with you again soon.